0: Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'll be speaking to philosopher Julian Baggini, author of The Great Guide, what David Hume can teach us about being human and living well. Street side in Cotton, Bristol, outside of the Bravas Spanish Tapas Bar. I'm here with author, philosopher and founding editor of The Philosophers magazine, Julian Bugini. Julian, thank you very much for joining me on The Booking Club. Pleasure, Jack. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Bravas then. Why have you chosen
1: Bravas as your favourite restaurant to come and meet and talk about your book today? Well, I mean, Bravas has been open now probably around a decade. It still feels new in a way. But, you know, time flies. And for the day it opened, it just was a huge, huge hit. And I think over the years, I mean, Bristol is blessed and has been blessed with any number of really good restaurants, um, places to eat. Not necessarily very high-end and expensive as well. They've got a few of those, but very good places. And it is it's the place that I've, we've probably been to most. And apart from just loving the food and everything, I kind of love the whole sort of ethos of the place. Um, the people who run it um, Kieran and Imogen. I mean, every year they shut for a week in January and take their staff on a trip to Spain, where they they meet some of the producers of the stuff they have, you know, and and that kind of like level of care for staff in hospitality is quite exceptional. They care about provenance. I remember once asking because I only eat meat if it's well reared. Uh, factory farming is an abomination as far as I'm concerned. And I remember what I saying. You know, do you know do you know anything about the pigs the chorizo comes from and well, they'd been to the farm in Spain, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Um, I, one thing I don't really like about sort of restaurant reviews, typical restaurant reviews, is they're just sort of like, it's almost like the blind tasting. Whereas actually, I think, you know, food is about the people and the stories behind it as well. What makes it a real pleasure is to, to, to be confident about where it's come from, to appreciate the values of the people cooking here. It's a package for me. I can't agree with you more on factory farming. And actually, my last few episodes have been with the author, Henry Mance. Uh, oh, yes, book, I reviewed you. it, actually. Yeah, did yeah. you? I did, yeah, yeah. I thought it was a very good book. I mean, he's he's become vegan and I did think that he wasn't sympathetic enough to the possibility that you could have um, humane and environmentally friendly meat. So I would take issue on that, but generally speaking, you know, to be honest, most people are so oblivious to these things that I don't mind him over-egging it a bit because the kind of things he points to, I always find it astonishing, actually, how few people take any care about where their meat and dairy comes from Mm. even vegetarians you know i was vegetarian for a while and one thing that gave me up was i realized i had to be either much much more fussy about my dairy or to be consistent i had to eat well reared meat because because factory farm dairy is some of the worst for animal welfare um and know vegetarians who don't eat meat because they care about animal welfare but they're not thinking about where their cheese and milk comes from it's, and so it's almost like they're saying it's wrong to kill animals, but it's okay to torture them. It was a
0: revelatory book, but uh, as I think I admitted to uh, Henry recently, it hasn't yet changed my palate. Hence, uh, many of the things we'll be eating today. <laughs> Although, I'm with you on the decision to eat only well-reared meat where you can. But listen, Gillian, you've written an excellent book telling the life story, shedding light on the wisdom of 18th century philosopher David Hume called the great guide there are so many philosophers one could draw on for wisdom that can help us think and live better today why did you choose
1: david hume well partly because he's neglected in that respect among philosophers he's kind of the the the, you know the monarch as it were um they did surveys of philosophers showed to be by far and away the sort of dead philosopher that philosophers at least in the english speaking world admire the most but you know he's really not very well known at all outside of that circle and I think that's partly because on the face of it apart from his work on religion which is often picked up on by modern day sort of humanists and atheists a lot of his work looks like it's a bit technical and not really of interest to everyday life but I think when you sort of combine his life with his work and you look at it in the right way I think there is a lot there to learn and also because I think that you're right, there have been a lot of books written about how philosophers can help you live your life better, you know? And I think some of them are a bit kind of pat. And some of them, I think... I mean, for example, the, the big fashion at the moment the last few years has been for the Stoics. Yeah, everyone loves the Stoics. Why do you think that is? It's a good question. I think it's because, you know, there is a lot in there to draw on. It's true. And they put things very well and very vividly. And it's not difficult to kind of see the attraction because the stoics are really trying to give us resources for making us less vulnerable to the you know uh, ebbing and flowing of fortune so they they give quite a lot of quite good advice about how to sort of try and be a bit stronger and more resilient and resilience is a big buzzword at the moment and That's i right. guess the stoics were the original resilience advocates and it but- sort of plays to the individualistic ethic that we live by today I think that's a very very good point because actually the the way in which you become more resilient is to become as self-sufficient as possible and in lots of ways it's about cutting yourself off now i should say i've I've talked about these things and written about these things and a lot of the neo-stoics as they called will completely disagree with what i say but every time i go back and look at what the stoics said and check it does seem to me that they were Requiring a degree of detachment from other people in the world which I don't think most people would think is desirable most of us I think would say that the price to pay for being attached is a certain degree of heartache misery disappointment you know there's a very famous thing I think it's Seneca it might be Marcus Aurelius and Richie he, he says you know if you, if you break a jug remember it's just a jug all this stuff's fair enough when you kiss your wife and your children remember they're just flesh and blood they go The idea is that you shouldn't get too attached, even to your wife and children. (laughs) Now, I think if you're going to feel devastated when your wife and children die, and therefore not be properly stoic, to me, that's a price to pay. For having the the attachment in the first place, I think they, they they're striving for a degree of serenity, which I think is is inhuman. And Hume thought that as well. I was going to say Hume strove for serenity, but he had a very different idea of what that consisted in. Didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he strove for serenity as such. I mean, in his in his youth, he got very much into the Stoics, and he had a kind of a nervous breakdown that he later diagnosed as really trying to work too hard. But, and he just, and once once he realised you needed time for leisure and rest and the sociability and food and drink, he never. never. Never had any kind of recurrence of that. Yeah, but he found the Stoics too austere. He thought that the picture of life they were portraying was fit for gods, not humans, because it required that degree of like refinement, if you like, or, or detachment. So he he didn't go that far with them. But of course, he agreed with some things. And I do have a bit of a slightly, I don't know, facetious kind of take on this, which is I think that. Everything that the Stoics said that was correct, and they said a lot of things that were correct are not distinctly stoic, and everything that is distinctly stoic is not correct and I think the pop the, when people latch onto the Stoics, what they 're really taking from it are things which are not actually uniquely stoic at all. The idea that you shouldn't get too attached to material things fine that's not distinctly stoic. The Stoics said it. They were some of the earliest to say, it, and they said it well. But they're not the only people to say it. But you should expect things to go wrong in life. You shouldn't expect things to be a picnic. Well, you know, everyone gets told that as a child. You don't have to be a stoic to believe that. So I think that they, 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 they put a lot of these things very, very well. But the whole system is too much. Hume may not have been
0: serene, although the pictures that we see of him painted in the 18th century portray a very serene-looking man, yeah. uh, a man who is enjoying life, a man who is content. He may also not have been a Stoic, but he was moderate in all things, wasn't he? Let's yeah. talk about Hume the man. Born in Edinburgh in 1711, the younger of two brothers, the family name was actually spelt H-O-M-E, home, which he later would change to avoid the inevitable English mispronunciation. Importantly, though, he wasn't born into money, but he was very gifted intellectually and so attended university at the age of 12, so quite extraordinary what about Hume's early life can help us to understand him as the philosopher that he would later
1: become well actually it wasn't that unusual to go to university at 12 at that time it was a very typical age so it wasn't precocious of him to go to university at that age but he was able like a lot of able people he didn't really get on with with, a university He, he ended up saying there's nothing to be learned from a professor that can't be learned from books words to that effect um, so fairly precocious then yeah he was fairly precocious I think, I think I think. you know the, the, you can imagine the way of teaching there probably would have been very kind of didactic and whereas he liked to explore and read what is it about his background which I mean it's hard to say actually I mean and it's not obvious and I think sometimes perhaps when we look back at people's lives we kind of have this kind of desire to pinpoint the the pushes and the levers and the cause oh well that's why it was always going to happen I don't think there's anything his upbringing would suggested it was always going to happen at all. It seems to be just a matter of temperament and ability. And obviously, I think he must have been given a certain degree of freedom by his family to do this. Because in a lot of families, you would have been really pushed into certain careers, you know. And he you know, he had a go at trying to do something more sensible than become a man of letters, as he put it. Um, he, wanted, he tried going into law, didn't he? Didn't agree with him. I didn't agree with that. He tried uh, commerce here in Bristol. That didn't go very well at all either. So in the end, he just thought he'd he'd follow his calling. Although it's true he wasn't born into money. I mean, it's a very very different world. He was born into money in the sense that at that time, I don't know what the proportions were, but probably you know about ten percent of the people were what we now call middle class, and ninety percent were like working class. And you know he, he you know his family had enough money. They just weren't rich by moderns by contemporary standards. But he was okay. And I think that one of the interesting things about him is that, you know, whereas the Stoics, for example, would always parade their disdain for wealth and material goods, and you shouldn't even concern yourself with this, even though, you know, actually a few of them are actually very rich. (laughs) Um, Hume, I think, never sort of being rich, he always kind of wanted that material security. He wanted to reach a point where he wouldn't have to worry about his income, and he could just get on with things. And I think that's very understandable and, and, and fine. It didn't stop him from following his vocation. He didn't think it was so important that he forced himself to become a lawyer even though he didn't want to. But, you know, he realized, I think in a typically realistic, commonsensical way, that if you're going to pursue your life as a person of letters, then it really damn well helps to have a bit of money in the bank and not have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. So when he finally did achieve that, he felt rich, you know. He felt he had everything he needed, and, and he did. We'll get into his
0: philosophy in a moment, but uh, of course he has entered mainstream debate, hasn't he, Hume, over the past year and a half, though not, yeah. as you address up front in the book, for necessarily the best reasons, because you mentioned that he worked in Bristol as a young man, Um, He was a merchant and he worked for a man named Michael Miller who traded in sugar, which meant that Hume would have necessarily been a small but instrumental cog in the 18th century slave trade. More damningly, though, he wrote in a footnote to one of his essays this line, I am apt to suspect the Negroes and in general all other species of men to be naturally inferior to the whites. Now, Hume was so good at resisting conventional wisdom. Hume was nothing if not skeptical of ideas which gain traction simply because they're popular. Why, then, was he so easily brought into the fold through some of the
1: worst ideas of his time? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I I think we shouldn't let him off too easily, nor damn him too too strongly. First of all, I think it's important and useful to remember that there are very few people who are complete saints, if any, you know? And if you think of the sort of people who have been most admired in recent history, I mean... Nelson Mandela's probably the only one who, as far as I can tell, has no serious stain against him. He's, he stands out for that reason. Gandhi Gandhi was said some very racist things about black Africans, actually. You know, So this paragon of peace, this person who promoted non-violence and is a great hero, even he had his flaws. And I think that we shouldn't expect anyone to be completely flawless. Now, if we were to ask why this flaw... I think that we need to contextualise this very carefully, not just about the time. Now, first of all, at the time, this was by no means a view which was widely contested. There were some people who were smart enough to challenge it, including, I think James Beattie was his name, who wrote against Hume on this point, but most people didn't. And the other point to mention was, as you say, it was a, a footnote, which begins with, ''I'm apt to suspect.'' And I think that in this case, obviously this was a bigger mistake and he, he shouldn't have made it, but we can't expect anyone to be perfect. And given his qualifications, given his time, I think we should be more understanding. You know, I think that there's always this temptation people have to believe that they could never have done or believed the awful things that previous generations did. And I just think that is... Delusion is bullshit. So I think we have to draw a very, very careful balance here. We shouldn't let Hume off this, but nor should we sort of like say, well, that's it. He's, he was therefore a demon. He is inexcusable. He should be cancelled. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that is that if you look at the general, the whole thrust of his thought as a whole, it's very clear he was an evidence-based sceptical thinker. There's no way he would maintain that view today in the face of the evidence. There's just no way. Uh, Edith Hall made a similar point about Aristotle. Aristotle is, you know, along with Hume, up there for me as the greats. Like Hume, he was a person of his time. He didn't think there's anything wrong with slavery. Hume did, by the way. Hume was against slavery. He thought it was barbaric. But he worked in the, in the slave trade. I mean, how could you not, if you were in trade in that sense? It's a bit like today. I think today, um, the vast majority of people are complicit in animal cruelty, right A huge numbers people are complicit in animal cruelty by the things that they buy people are and still are very complicit in what is almost as bad as slavery um, You know, people are buying f- clothes and they're not checking out the provenance when something is so deeply ingrained in the system I think it's not realistic to ask people just completely detach themselves from it now more damning than that though is, is that he and, he and also he didn't stick with that trade to be honest I mean which was interesting um, but he did once advise someone to invest in a plantation, which came to light fairly recently, actually. And that seems to be worse. But again, I think that it was in the context where a friend asked him to ask a friend if he would invest, and he did, you know. But
0: I think it's a fair point you make, that such ambient forms of oppression and, yeah. and exploitation, that's where I think this becomes, as you say, unavoidable for its time.
1: What is it that we're drinking here? We ordered this at the beginning. It's some sort of dry sherry. Yeah, it's a Manthania sherry, so... Um, it's 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 not the driest, but it's a very nice, pleasant, dry thing. Very typical um, Spanish things. It's just, sherry's one of those drinks that have been rather rehabilitated, hasn't it? People used to think of the harvest Bristol Cream, um, imported here uh, many years ago. Yeah, what do you think of it? Do you like it? I like it very much, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great little sort of aperitivo. I say it's an aperitif, but it, in the sherry-drinking region... They drink it just with their meals. Mm-hmm. I, I went many years ago to San Luca, to, 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 I can't, it's got a longer name, but it's San Luca one in the Sherry Triangle. And uh, yeah, it's quite amazing. You go for your menu del dia there and have your lunch, and instead of getting sort of like wine, you get the Sherry. It goes so well with... Um, it, has to, it goes really well with seafood. If you're thinking of um, you know, wine pairing, um, people generally think of getting sherry out of the way before you start eating, but, it, but have it with seafood, it's really, really nice. When I first sipped this, I thought my head was going to start throbbing, but actually it's
0: going down really yeah. well. This yeah. is a nod to the title of the book. Uh, Hume once wrote, quote, custom and
1: habit is the great guide to human yeah. life. What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant was that we like to think... That we believe the things we do and we do the things we do because we have good reasons for them or because we've worked out the reasons in the past and so forth. And he says that is simply not true. That the vast majority of what we do is a result of custom and habit. Now, you may think when you first read that, he's talking of or primarily or only of kind of social customs. He doesn't mean that. I mean, it's far more deep-rooted than that. So, for example, one of Hume's most troubling sceptical arguments is that in order to do anything in the world, we have to believe in in cause and effect. Now, I mean, a lot of people who don't do philosophy, they never really thought about cause and effect. And they may not think that that's a fundamental concept in their life, but it is. Um, if you drink a glass of water, it's on the assumption that it's going to quench your thirst or rehydrate you. If you eat food, it's on the assumption that it's going to cause you to be... If you, if you sit on the chair, it's on the assumption that, um, that its solidity is going to stop you falling through it. I mean, the cause and effect pervades everything that we do. And, and, and Hume shows, I think, very, very persuasively, that we actually don't have a single good rational argument for why we believe everything is the result of cause and effect. It's the deepest assumption that we have, and yet we can't justify it rationally. Probably we don't to go into the details of that, because it'll get a bit technical, maybe.
0: How would you ball but- down that argument? Because, as you say, yeah, it's one of the deepest assumptions we have. I mean, I'll use his famous example. If I'm playing snooker or billiards, and I knock the white onto the black, and I see the black moves when the white hits it, there must be some cause and effect there. How can that be
1: you do assume you but it's right but you assume what do you see what you see is one thing followed by another you see a sequence of events now of course we all assume that that sequence of events happened because there's something underpinning it which is causal but we don't actually observe that and arguably we don't even observe it if we get scientific about it because in a way all science does is kind of uh give give numbers and names to those regularities. But even if we could, the point is that for everyday life, we are not we haven't discovered the hidden springs of causation. We're just seeing things follow each other and assuming there's a causal power there. And Hume argues that, uh, you know, we, that's a kind of an instinct. So the custom and habit here is one that we're born with. And we have to be born with it. Otherwise, we could make no sense of the world whatsoever. So it's some people are really really troubled by this and Hume at times was troubled but in the end wasn't because what it suggests is that the fundamental basis of our understanding of the world is something that we don't rationally just can't rationally justify, we just have to accept it and that's for a philosopher to embrace that is quite bracing because philosophers generally are very keen to kind of not be satisfied with just well that's the way it is But he goes, in this case, you can't do better than that. I can just hear listeners
0: listening to us now and thinking, how is this helping me to live better? They're talking about (laughs) billiard balls. And and I suppose, as you say, he talks a lot about, you know, the themes of human life, the things that we struggle to attain or achieve. And one of them, of course, is confidence. He has some interesting things to say about this, which, as you write, is something which has evolved in our culture into a sort of supreme virtue. Confidence, we're told, is key to happiness, success, likability, even good health. Hume, however, says that we shouldn't necessarily strive for confidence. Why
1: does he say that? Well, actually, this relates to the cause and effects thing. His philosophy, uh, basically, is sceptical, is but it's a moderate scepticism. And what it kind of teaches in general is, is that we cannot be confident of anything. We should never be confident of anything. So even when he made that notorious remark about race, you know, he qualified that with, I'm apt to suspect, you know, he knew that He knew that that was by no means certain. In fact, the way he put it, it wasn't even necessarily probable. It was just at that point, it seemed to him the evidence was leaning that way. And um, in general in life, to be able to live with uncertainty and, and a lack of confidence is really very important. Because I think it's very natural to kind of want certainty, to want to be confident... And that leads us to, well, make mistakes, essentially, or become too committed to things we shouldn't be committed to. So it is a kind of a life skill. And I think that, I mean, I I believe actually there's some evidence in psychology that people who sort of come out best in terms of what they call psychologically well-adjusted people, one of the key indicators of that is the ability to cope with uncertainty and ambiguity, it's a really key skill, and you know, so in a sense, Hume doesn't come at this from a self-help point of view, but actually, it is very helpful, you know, because you can always say, "Oh, we need to live with uncertainty," you know, whatever it might be. But if you understand quite profoundly why that's inevitable, why we can't have any other knowledge, then I think you're likely to take on that lesson much more deeply. The sherry is starting to work on my head a bit. Okay. I say, I
0: say, we order some food. Yeah, let's
1: do that. Let's. Um, I think they're being polite. Hi, right, can we order some stuff? Um, we'll have some tortilla because that's the law. Chorizo insider is also the law. We should have the corada plancha because it's not the law, but it's always very, very good. We'll have the chickpea pipirana and we'll have the pardina lentils. Okay, we'll start with that and see how we go. Yeah. Any more drinks for you guys? Just to have a drink. What
0: would you recommend um, to follow a share What have you got? I'm um, sensing white wine might be a, a good option. Do You want a glass of the Albarino, red white wine. That sounds excellent. Have two of those. Yeah, sure.
1: thank you.
0: I mean, Hume was—he was also pretty moderate in all things political, wasn't he? Yeah. Although um, never one to take off the skeptic's hat, he was also cautious of too much moderation. Mm. Where do you place Hume on the political spectrum, and what do you think he would have made of public discourse
1: today? Yeah, now that's a very, very interesting question. Actually, in fact, to be honest, I, I, I should have. I wrote a piece after finishing the book for Prospect about his politics, in which I saw sort of said a few things I didn't manage to get into the book because I didn't think of them in time. <laughs> but yeah, it did strike me that you know Hume is, it moderate in his politics, but he was also sort of like he was small C conservative for sure, and I think that he was we'd probably judge. I think it's interesting enough that he's, you know, as you say, in the philosophy profession, he's revered and admired. But, you know, most philosophers are sort of left liberal. And it's curious that the person they most admire was politically fairly conservative. And I was wondering about that. And I I thought in the end that the reason for that is that his general sort of moderation and scepticism served him very, very well in most matters. But in politics, it put him too far on the wrong end of a spectrum. So if I can bring in Aristotle again. <laughs> Aristotle argued that when you think of virtues and vices, we tend to think of them as opposites. Aristotle said, no, with virtues and vices, there's the op- the extremes are the vices, and the virtue is somewhere between. Not necessarily bang in the middle, but somewhere between. So, so in politics, one of the virtues of politics is... Uh, well, one vice of politics is to be this sort of like that ground zero thinking, to kind of have the um, audacity, well, audacity might be a positive word, have the nerve to believe that you can kind of just design society from the bottom up anew and make it run perfectly without recognising what a delicate kind of ecosystem, if you like, the world really is. And the other extreme is a kind of extreme conservatism whereby you just... All change is rejected because change is dangerous, etc. etc. Now on that spectrum, I think Hume sits just a bit too much towards a conservative end. And that's the one point where his skepticism I think let him down. Because in a way, you know, we tend to think, you know, are you too skeptical or not sceptical enough? Another thing we have to do is distinguish what are you skeptical about. And Hume was very skeptical of the power of human reason and ingenuity to devise utopias. And I think he's right to do that. But I don't think he was sufficiently sceptical of existing institutions. Well, let's
0: let's, if I may, yeah. let, let's just uh, reflect on the fact that, as as I think we've covered already, you know, he may not have challenged some of the worst ideas of his time enough. I mean, he is, you know, he did say, "quote the the certain harms of the status quo are sometimes more real than the certain dangers of reform." He understood the dangers of conservatism, even if he lent too much towards I that. I think that's
1: me actually, rather than him. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> and some of the lessons I sum up a negative. There are a couple of the negative lessons. Oh, I got you. Okay, this is definitely one of Hume's though
0: and i think this goes to the second half of the question public spirit should engage us to love the public and bear an equal affection to all our countrymen not to hate one half of them under
1: color of loving the whole yeah i think that is such a timely quote isn't it i mean the language is a bit 18th century but the sentiment is spot on so i mean obviously the whole brexit thing came out of that you know that a lot of people on both sides you know people were were claiming that their position their views were for love of country, whatever it was. And yet, in the name of that, they ended up despising the half of the population who disagreed with them, which is awful. He was one of the great political virtues of Hume was his absolute disdain for factionalism of all kinds. So he, he hated factionalism and would do anything to, you know, basically. Avoid it. Let's. I can't concentrate. Let's let's divide this. Yeah, absolutely. let's go for it. Thank you.
0: This looks delicious. It was it was very
1: photogenic about five seconds ago. Yeah, now it's been destroyed. <laughs> tortilla de patatas. I mean, tortilla is this great simple Spanish thing, and in in the Basque country they have what they call these pinchos, which are these just little bite sized things that you eat on the bar um, with a drink. In all, you'd never have a drink without having a pincho, and I probably had a pincho tortilla every day I was there. It was just. This is gorgeous. Uh, I, I think a great tortilla. It should be slightly runny in the middle, but not too much. So, dish number two has just come out. Julian,
0: what, what do we have here? We have two what look like very delicious red sausages, yeah, covered in onions.
1: Apologies to people who are offended by meat eating. This is chorizo cooked in cider. and the, the chorizo comes from pigs which you know, uh, you know, the people who run this restaurant have have seen, or at least their relatives. Um, so it's very well
0: weird stuff. Again, no offence, meant, but absolutely delicious, succulent. And this wine as well, fantastic. What was this again? This is Albarino. I don't know what to describe it. It's slightly smoother white wine. It's very smooth. It's so deep. And here we have some chickpeas and uh, what looks like maybe... That's tuna belly. Is it? Yeah, it's tuna belly, yeah. Well, Hume would have approved very much of what we're doing here today, wouldn't he, Julian? Just enjoying food and conversation; those two things were central to his definition of the good life. He became a, a very avid cook as
1: he grew older. He actually said in a letter that he wasn't a gourmand, just a glutton. But I think that's kind of like just self-deprecatingly humour. He was a big guy. He, he was, was a big, guy. jolly-looking man. He became corpulent quite young and stayed it. I never, knew, I never knew quite what to make of this in the sense that if an 18th-century man says he's a cook. Does that really mean he cooks everything, or does it mean that he instructs his housekeeper to cook? And I haven't got a definitive answer to that, but it would seem that whatever the answer is, he took a keen interest in it. Well, he he knew the recipes of the things that he professed to cook, didn't he? Was it sheep's head broth and things like that? Yeah, people were still talking about sheep's head broth for like a week after eating it, apparently. Um, It was a toast of the town. Something
0: tells me that even on the basis of the evidence today, Hume would have struggled to have cut out meat from his diet.
1: I think he would have been... He would have been, I think, fairly well advanced on the animal argument. There's a remarkable very short chapter in the essay concerning human understanding in which he talks about the reason of animals. And it's very short, but he says, you know, there's this question, do animals reason? And he says, yes, absolutely. And he explains why. And it's what's remarkable about it, well, two things are remarkable about it. First of all, he's saying that animals reason at a time where most people still thought they were just, like, automaton. But secondly, his reason for this is not that he attributes to animals' skills of, like, higher logic or something. It's because he recognised that much of what we call human reasoning is a form of instinct and habit and association. And that form of reasoning is precisely what animals do. And that our greater sophistication is, in lots of respects, simply a greater ability to... Join the dots. I think a lot of contemporary, well, recent animal experiments suggest that, don't they? So it's like certain tasks that animals can solve or can't solve. And a part of it is the ability to sort of just see a couple of steps ahead. So cats, I love cats, but they're a bit thick on this kind of stuff. You know, Cats are really bad. You, they set them these tasks and they can't see beyond what's in front of their eyes. and work Tell out me about them. it. Tell me about it. I'm but, running around after my cat, like a neurotic parent. Yeah. but other one was like COVIDs, so I think, you but know, are very, very smart at that. And, and we, we seem to be the smartest in that respect. And that seems to be an ability to kind of, as it were, imagine steps in our head which take us a bit further but the basic process isn't different to that of animals, it's just got a greater capacity so I think he would have been we've got evidence that he was ahead of the curve in terms of recognising the similarities between animals and humans he was a good empiricist, he would have also been recognised that they feel pain and suffer etc etc, so you would have thought that yes, he would have um, he would have certainly been in favour of greater animal welfare With no point speculating whether he would have been vegan or vegetarian <laughs> What did he have to say about human nature? The things that we find ourselves
0: doing because it is "quote unquote" in our nature, but which he warned against. The things that about our nature that we should be most suspicious of, and the things that we should
1: try to embrace as a consequence. We've already mentioned, you know, the propensity to to form factions, to kind of see things in in black and white terms, um, our desire for certainty. Um, are he listens to quite a lot of things um he he talks about i mean he describes a lot of things which we can give contemporary names to and uh without the book in front of me now i can't remember exactly all of them but i think for example a confirmation bias confirmation bias we think of as this great discovery of 20th century psychology he pretty much he doesn't use the term obviously but he pretty much describes it this idea that you know we are drawn to the things which confirm what we already believe and we ignore the things that don't. (laughs) Um, So I think in general, it's hard to sum it all up. But I think that, you see, Hume talks about how we're creatures of habit and custom and that this wasn't a bad thing, it's an inevitable thing. But that doesn't mean that he thought that we should just always just go with what our first inclination is. We should be checking these things. And I think that I think his general view would be that the more you can understand human nature in all its aspects, the more you can be sympathetic to those aspects of human nature which are beneficial, even if they sometimes lead us astray, but also to um, you know, catch ourselves when, for very natural, in inverted commas, reasons, we're, we're drawn to do or say something, but it's not right. Did Hume believe it was more important to be compassionate than to be right or even clever? i think he did i mean i kind of summed it up in those terms that it's not his not his words i think that is true because it goes back to that idea that we can never be sure we're right so if we thought the most important thing is always to be right well we're insisting upon something we can never know if we've achieved it but to be compassionate to be understanding to be kind these things are very important and if you think about it, if we're all of those things, then when the, the terrible things that happen, the vast majority would never happen if people put that at the forefront rather than the desire to be exactly right. And I, he he really did live this. I mean, it's interesting that he's a big hero to a lot of contemporary atheists because of the ways in which he skewered a lot of the traditional arguments for the existence of god but he was never anti-religious in a in a strong way he just thought it was wrong and he had lots of friends who were clergymen and he corresponded with them and there's even talk of him sharing a house with one at one stage he he was against what he called superstition and enthusiasm The, the two vices of religion when it really does go wrong so superstition is at that time, he was associating a lot with Catholicism, you know, as, as a lot of people did, you know, belief in transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus and so forth. And he thought that was quite dangerous, partly because it, it encourages stupidity and it encourages people not to think for themselves and, and also gives people power over others, you know, because if, if you're the gatekeeper of these mystical processes, then you've got power. And the other, but also uh, enthusiasm by which he really meant fanaticism that's what we would say today the enthusiasm of any kind he was against in politics and religion so that's why he was never a kind of anything like uh, a lot of contemporary atheists I think he was an atheist in the sense that he would never say we could be sure God does not exist but he certainly thought we had no reason to think God existed and that therefore we live as though there's no God which is to be an atheist but he would never be in favour of, you know, asserting that dogmatically. And if 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 a person who disagrees with you, as long as they're behaving in ways which are tolerant and understanding and, and loving to other people, why should it matter so much whether they believe in God or not? You know, I'd much, and I'd, I often find it the same. I'd, I have much better conversations and things with thoughtful religious people than I do with dogmatic atheists. I'd much rather talk to a thoughtful religious person and dogmatic atheist any day of the week. Do you think there's an excess of overconfident atheism today? If you had asked that question ten years ago I'd have said yes Sorry. but I think the wheels turned a bit. You know the new atheism of the first decade of the 21st century Dawkins Hitches and Harris in particular um, I think was far too strident far too arrogant far too hostile it didn't have any place in it for, you know, reasonable people of, of belief. It just dismissed the whole thing as illogicality and, and, and ridiculousness. But I think that wave's passed a bit. I think there's been quite a lot written since and followed since where people are more interested in distinguishing between the good and bad forms of religion... And also being open about what can be learned from religion. You know, we don't want to chuck babies out with bath waters. Religion's been very good at providing ritual, community, uh, continuity, tradition. You know, these are, these are good things that religion is associated with. So I, I, I hopefully think that a very, very strident and aggressive form of atheism is no longer what people first think of when they think of atheism, although maybe perhaps it is. Dipping into the Humean maxims
0: here, on the necessity of emotion, the sentiments of those who are inclined to think favourably of mankind are more advantageous to virtue than the contrary principles, which
1: give us a mean opinion of our nature. Well, I think, that, you know, I think Hume is kind of right. If you end up taking a very, very dim view of, of your fellow creatures and everything, then you're going to care less about them, you're going to be more indifferent to their suffering, you're going to be less empathetic, less understanding... It's not a very nice world if you do that. But the strange thing is there's a sense in which Hume does take a dim view of humankind. And there's a way of being both, if you like, a little bit sceptical of, of humanity and yet also loving it too. It's that kind of embracing the infallibility. And it's partly that... It, the point is this. If people are going to say, I take a dim view of humankind, then presumably they have to accept the fact that they're humans themselves and they take a dim view of themselves, right? So that can just go into sort of loathing of yourself and others. Or it can turn into a a compassion. You know, listen, we're all fallible, weak, somewhat silly creatures. I think that's kind of my view. And I try not for that to lead me towards a kind of a hatred and despising of people, but a sympathy and compassion. Because when I see idiocy in other people, I like to remind myself of their idiocies in myself. And of course, we never see our own idiocies as clearly as we do those of others and another one here there are
0: great advantages in travelling and nothing serves more to remove prejudices <laughs> uh, but you actually wrote yourself that travel can only expand the mind if the mind is already expansive I actually yeah. find
1: that more interesting I think that's true but I think it's, it's also true that in a sense we don't need to, to do that anymore I've enjoyed a lot of travelling in my life I've done virtually none of it in the last sort of 18 months but you can see it with people yeah. how does the experience work and there are people who come back from their gap years gushing with how much they've learnt about the world and you can tell they've learnt nothing, you know? <laughs> um, it's remarkable how people can, can travel and, and, and not see a thing. And in some ways it can be dangerous because it reassur- people can take it as a reassurance. Oh, I'm travelled, I'm understanding, I'm cosmopolitan, I'm open, you know? And you don't have to actually do the actual work of being open and whatever. You just have to kind of go through the motions of showing how open you are by the fact that you once had a drink with someone on a beach in Bali who wasn't from your own country.
0: Never think that as long as you are master of your own fireside and your own time, you can be unhappy, and that any other circumstance can make an addition to your enjoyment. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? I mean, that, in a way, that, that sums up who Hume was, because however much he, he toiled to find, for want of a better word, truth, in the bundle of chaotic sensations and ideas. He was a man who ultimately knew how to be a man, not just a philosopher, which is another famous quote of his.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I think some of these phrases he uses are, if you dig into them, perhaps are slightly exaggerated. And one of the interesting things about Hume was he kind of oscillated between sort of craving more solitude and and enjoying company. And in that sense, I think I, I do feel a bit like him, in the sense that I think that I'm a... In personality type, I would be described as introverted. and But that doesn't mean shy. It doesn't mean not liking people. It just means that, you know, your default mode is is basically solitude. But I enjoy meeting people too, and it's great to get out and, and, and see people. And I think he was probably like that. But, you know, I think, you know, I mean, it may be different for other people. You know, maybe for other people, is isn't the fireside and the books. Maybe it's the fireside and the CDs or whatever it is, or the fireside and knitting I don't know what it is but it's that idea that you know if you if you are able to have the freedom and liberty to basically get on with whatever it is that most you most value then you've got what most counts and I do think that's a really important lesson and I think that's what success is many years ago I wrote an article which never got published and it was about the meaning of success and it was about seven people from two bands who were on the verge of making it big and didn't quite make it and ultimately the story was very very heartwarming because I think all of them were successful because although they didn't have that big hit they'd all somehow managed to continue doing what they loved and and I thought that was brilliant I thought that's, that's the moral of the story that's brilliant never got published I think because the, the publication I, I wrote it for they wanted to hear about how you know nearly making it left people in a car crash of a life and drugs and addiction it just wasn't like that it just wasn't like that and I, th- I think I think that's that's true so often we all know that we pursue the wrong goals I think sometimes people think that we pursue the wrong goals because we're too concerned with material things which is true but it's simplistic what else should you do then But well, then people are still striving they're striving for yet more experiences new experiences give me another experience you know whatever it might be and I do think that there's a wisdom there to appreciate the fact that simply doing what you love doing, what you value doing, that's what more could you want than that? Really, that is a good human note to
0: end on there, Julian. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Booking Thanks, Club. Jack.
1: Enjoyed it very much.
0: Here's hoping you enjoyed this episode, for which special thanks is owed to Princeton University Press, and with credit, as always, for the music, to Boogie Belgique.